Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There's definitely a question here. Are we going to see more inflation next year? Are we going to see a resurgence of growth? Or are we going to see a dampening of some of the high hopes that we have priced into stocks? Joining us now, John Riding, Chief Economic Advisor to Breen Capital, joining us here in our 1130 studios with his party hat on, ready for the New Year celebration. <laughs> um, what do you think? Do you think that we're going to see an accelerating, a re-accelerating economy next year or, or the opposite? You know, Lisa, I find it very interesting, the term re-accelerating economy, because if you look over the last 10 and a half years of this expansion, Economic growth has averaged 2.3%, and it has been the most stable period of economic growth on record. And this year uh, that we are ending today, we'll see growth in line with that 10-year trend. So growth hasn't gone anywhere. What has changed is perceptions of where growth is going to go. And we came into 2019 on this tremendous fear of a recession and the yield curve was inverted and you know even the you go to a, a gas station and you hear people that the, the, the gas tenant you know, talking about inverted yield curve which they probably <laughs> no idea what inverted yield curve was but really, that's not true that, that, Did you that, actually that, go to a gas station and hear people talking about inverted yeah absolutely yield curve? true really I, where I, which I, state I, ab- absolutely true you had people it, it became People talk about cocktail party conversation. You know, you just you just overhear people talking about it. And Did you? <laughs> Paul? In New Jersey all the time. Yeah. And we are now entering into 2020 where there's no fears of recession. Um, there's no fears for the market. We, if you remember the debacle on Christmas Eve, setting the, you know, the end of a, o- o- almost a bear market. It was really a very violent correction in stocks. So where are we now? Is we going to... Uh, Go into 2020. I mean, our growth numbers are around two and a quarter percent. An acceleration will be two and a half percent. A big acceleration is very difficult because we don't have the people to employ to three and a half percent unemployment rate. There's a story out this morning that about the slowing population growth and we've just had the slowest yep. population growth in a century in the U.S. And that continues for a while. And we haven't yet seen the big pickup in productivity growth. So pencil in another year of uh, two and a quarter percent or so uh, economic growth, maybe two and a half, two and three quarter percent on the on the high end. Um, the risk is to the downside if uh, we don't get profit growth going again, and that and that's a really big issue for the U.S. Hey, John, can you put into context for our listeners what a ten or eleven percent? I'm sorry, ten or eleven year expansion in the economy. How unusual is that? Well, it's unprecedented. So I guess unprecedented would make it pretty unusual. unusual. It's never happened. He just did okay, that. So what? So how do we think about that? Is that is that good? Is that the new normal? Is that I mean, are we poised for some significant correction in the economy? Well, if you step back and you look at all of the recessions and expansions uh, since the uh, uh, in the post-war period, so 1945 on. You have seen in the last two or three decades, expansions become longer. Recessions were becoming shorter, and then, of course, we had the Great Recession, though not quite sure what's so great about it, but nevertheless, <laughs> we had the Great Recession. But now, the Great Recession has set the stage for a 10-and-a-half-year economic expansion, with expansion expected to continue through 
2020. So whether it's the new norm or not, it's the environment in, in which we yeah. are in. Well, here here's the thing. I mean, if you talk about the fact that we're probably in for more of the same, we're not in for a reacceleration, we're not in for a big decline or recession, as the people in the gas station were talking about the inverted yield curve six months ago, are no longer doing so, evidently. <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, is that consistent with valuations where they are in equities? That is a great question, and my fear is not. Let me explain. If you look at the, we use a very simple model. We take the level of profits and we discount it by the level of corporate bond yields. And bond yields are very low. But even on that calculation, the market looks a little bit overvalued. Now, what's the major problem for the market? Wage growth has been exceeding the sum of profit growth, sorry, the sum of price gains plus productivity gains. And so profit margins have been squeezed. And they've been squeezed now uh, for about five years. We need to get profit growth to pick up uh, because we can't simply have a risk on rally from here. Well, we can for a while, but it would end uh, badly because in an environment where the trade deals are done, the risk is off the table and we just run the market higher because we are risk on um, and we don't have the profit gains, then, then bond yields rise and that actually reduces the sort of fair value of the equity market. So the, everything hangs on price increases and on productivity gains and on rekindling capital spending. So that's the key thing I would like. Do we start to see signs that we're going to see vigorous growth in capital spending? Because that was the most disappointing part of the economy. When you're looking for a part of the economy that did crater and does need to reaccelerate, it's CapEx. We need to move to an economy which has more capital spending to support stronger productivity gains uh, to, to boost the economy. How much of, John, do you think the, to the extent we've had a contraction or just a a, uh, a pairing back of capital investment, how much of that is due to just the cycle we're in in the economy versus the uncertainty associated with all the trade issues? I think it's the latter. I don't just think it's trade. Look, December 2017, we had the corporate tax reform. We had the corporate tax cut. The U.S. was no longer uncompetitive from a tax perspective. We had a number of tax incentives in place, and we started to have a pickup in capital spending. And then in the middle of 2018, it just stopped, and we haven't had growth. The one area we've had growth in is uh, in intellectual uh, product. That has been the strong area of capital spending. But in terms of plant equipment uh, buildings, it, it's been uh, very, very weak. Um, so I, you know, we're going to have a test. Trade uncertainty is reduced. Are people not going to commit? Or are they going to say, well, 2020 is an election year. Let's wait till after the election. And then we have another year of blah capital spending. And uh, um, I'm hopeful, but it's a very difficult thing to forecast that we do start to see a pickup, but it's not there uh, in the numbers yet. John Riding, thank you so much for being with us and Happy New Year. John Riding, Chief Economic Advisor to Breen Capital. Do you plan on going to Times Square? Um, no, but Breen Capital's offices are at three Times Square. So, so does that mean you're going to be avoiding them or heading there? Um, well, that would be I, I decided them. not to. They did have <laughs> the opportunity to watch the, to, to watch the uh, ball drop. But uh, I think I'm going to stay home. My mum's over from England. She's 90, and uh, I think uh, she deserves uh, uh, me to be there. Well, Very cheers good. cheers to your mom uh, and Happy New Year. What do you plan on doing, Paul? Uh, staying close to home, which is not Times Square. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. We've heard lots about the uh, New Jersey crossways right now.
One of the more interesting stories when we woke up this morning is the story about Carlos Ghosn, the fallen automotive titan. He's facing trial for financial crimes. He fled to Lebanon to escape what he called Japan's rigged justice system. To get the latest, uh, we welcome Donna Kreich. She is a reporter for Bloomberg News based in uh, the Middle East. Donna, thanks so much for joining us. What do we know about Mr. Ghosn's whereabouts right now? Hi. So we know he uh, is in Lebanon. We don't know exactly where he is. Um, I went to his house in Beirut earlier in the day, like in the early hours of the morning when we heard the news. And um, there were no security and it wasn't clear if Gon was at the house. Um, some of the windows the windows were open. Some of them were closed. So it doesn't seem that he was inside or anything. Um, we know that also one of the uh, Lebanese ministers said that he entered Lebanon legally through his French passport and a Lebanese ID. Um, and he also said, this minister said that he uh, tried to convince uh, Japanese officials to uh, send him to Lebanon to be tried here, but, you know, he wasn't very successful. So we know he's in Lebanon, but we don't know exactly where he's staying. And just to sort of set this up, so Carlos Ghosn uh, said that he uh, is fleeing Japan's, quote, rigged justice system, that he was not fleeing justice, but rather injustice. And uh, he, of course, uh, has been accused of financial misconduct. Meanwhile, there is a question. Uh, Lebanon, uh, where he did uh, grow up and has citizenship, uh, he was formerly the head of Nissan and Renault. Uh, there is a question about extradition and the fact that they cannot, that Japan cannot extradite him from Lebanon. What have the authorities in Lebanon set up to this point? Um, they have been a little bit tight-lipped about this, but the Lebanese officials, ever since um, Gon was arrested, Lebanese officials have said that they will support him and they will extend as much help as uh, as needed for, for Gon. As you know, Gon is seen as a national hero here. Um, when he was first uh, detained, uh, billboards in support of him sprung up across the nation with his uh, with his pictures everywhere. People see him as one of the immigrants that you know made it big outside of Lebanon. So he's he's a national hero, and they've repeatedly said that they will support and help him, but they weren't very specific about how this support would materialize. Uh, Donna, any sense of what Mr. Ghosn might do next? I mean, we some said that he will hold a press conference, but did not specify when that will be, um, given that um, his, his whereabouts are unknown still in Lebanon. It's hard to tell. Um, some reports said that, said that he uh, met the president upon arrival, but we uh, later had some people denying this uh, to us. So he hasn't seen anyone. We, we talked to uh, a friend of his, a longtime friend, friend of his uh, earlier in the morning, and he said that he didn't know that uh, Gohan had arrived, but that um, he was happy he was here with his family home uh, for New Year. So uh, just to sort of uh, give some perspective, in news reports this morning, a lot of people were saying uh, that Gohan will probably never return to Japan because he would simply be rearrested uh, if he were to do so. Given the fact that you actually went to his house in Beirut. Can you give us a sense of what it's like? I mean, basically, is he living in the lap of luxury uh, by moving to Beirut and never returning to Japan? 
Um, the house is in one of the capital's most posh areas. It's very known. Um, it's like a light pink house. The painting is light pink with uh, light blue windows. It looks like an old house that's been recently renovated. Um, you know, there are some small shops around. Everyone knows that's Carlos Ghosn's house. Um, if you just drive through the street, there are all these really posh buildings around. So the area is really nice and and um, everybody knows that that's Gon's house. Dana, thanks so much, or Donna, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate your, your reporting from Beirut. Donna Kreich, uh, Bloomberg News, uh, reporting from Beirut about this really just amazing story. It's kind of a James Bond, Jason Bourne type of situation, kind of escaping uh, from Japan uh, to uh, go return Although, to Lebanon. Yeah, and, in fairness, uh, he didn't necessarily tunnel his way out exactly. of jail. I mean, he yeah, was out not, on it's, bail. It's unclear. Yeah, it's unclear how he actually made the trip from Japan. I mean, obviously on a private jet, but how that all came about. Uh, given that he was out on bail. I'm trying to get a sense, too. Is he right? Is it injustice what Japan is doing to him? I mean, I don't think uh, people think he is completely clean when it comes to uh, financial malfeasance, but there's a question about whether the potential penalty and the way that Japan's going about it has been fair. What a year to look back on for 2019, Lisa. Yeah, and we were asking the question, how long can the rally in both bonds that are considered safe and stocks continue? And it seems like there is a profound inconsistency here. Julian Emanuel just graced the door. Yes. Darken the door, Darken the door as, as Tom, Tom Keen would say. VTIG uh, chief equity and derivative strategist who's gotten it right uh, with the stock rally for years. And you called me out. I remember when I was once talking about how cash was looking better and you were like, you're crazy. <laughs> you were right. I was wrong. Um, what do you think for next year? Is one of the asset classes going to emerge superior bonds but, or stocks. But you still couldn't get Tom Keen to get out of his triple levered cash, cash ETF, <laughs> exactly. right? No. no, but he said but he sleeps well at night though. But, but occasionally <laughs> he'll, he'll jack it up to quadruple leverage. <laughs> if he's feeling really risky. So, so when we look at next year, it's not a continuation of the same because this year was, you know, very dramatic. Obviously it was not looking great in January. It was difficult to stick to our guns. Our view was that the Fed was going to help out they helped out a lot. We also didn't see recession. We don't see recession in 2020. The biggest difference coming into, into this next year is we think the bond market really, really did turn back in September. Probably a very significant bottom in, in global yields. And in fact, this is the point in the cycle where higher yields are likely to feed into more optimism with regard to equities. Certainly, we saw that in the fourth quarter. Um, but for us, the, the, the challenge, the interesting thing will be after 10 years of a bull market uh, that has been fought sort of tooth and nail, uh, you've seen it in terms of the lack of flows into equities for the last five years, does the public finally get a little bit more interested in stocks and start committing funds? We think the answer is yes, and we think that drives bond yields higher. So as we think about the market, the performance in 2019, uh, I would argue more than most people were anticipating. Is it primarily the Fed? Is that the primary thing in that investors should focus on in 2020? Well, actually, the Fed would prefer that you don't focus on them at all okay. in 2020. <laughs> and they've been successful, actually, yes, for the past have. few meetings. They've been incredibly boring. 
Congratulations. And and Jay Powell would love it to be that way for the entire rest of the year, which is why we also think that they were very, very forthright in getting front of of this turn of the year uh, liquidity um, in the repo markets, given the spike we had in September. We think they've done a great job of managing it. We think they'll do a great job over the next several weeks. For us, it's very much um, can confidence, which is turned, can the yield curve continue to steepen, which props confidence? And uh, is there fear of valuations, which we think, you know, really, they're expensive slightly, but not overly so. You said something uh, that piqued my interest dramatically, which is the idea that Treasury yields can rise and that that will be looked at as a good thing for stocks. That has not been the case for a while, or there is a threshold for how high treasury yields can go before it's considered a bad thing uh, when it comes to valuing equities. What's that tipping point? Well, so if you look at the last several years, the tipping point had been 10-year yields in the U.S. going over 3%. Obviously, we're a very long way away from that. Um, we happen to have a higher yield forecast than most. We're looking for 2.3. We're at uh, 1.89 right now. Right, right. Which, if you think about it, isn't terribly aggressive. If we're if uh, in in into an election year, and you think about politicians being incentivized to create upside risk to economic performance, which at you know sort of one eight one nine is a rather subdued number. Um, for us, the the tipping point in terms of where bonds become problematic is is quite a ways away. In our view, uh, likely north of two and a half percent, and that would require a material uh, reemergence of inflation, which we think you know will sort of peek its head through, but not become problematic. Julian, you mentioned uh, earlier valuation. I think about twenty nineteen again at twenty eight percent percent move up in the S&P 500 with little to no earnings growth in 2019. Where are we in valuation? It just feels like the market should be at the higher higher end. I should be concerned about valuation. Well, on, on metrics such as price to sales, you are at the higher end. Uh, we sort of tend to keep it simple. Um, it's obviously worked in terms of the story. Uh, on, on P.E., you really are only at the midpoint, slightly above the range of the last 30 years. And if, if our earnings estimates, 175 for, uh, for 2020, uh, are realized, um, and that growth rate, slightly under 7%, is very consistent with a, an economy chugging along and margins not necessarily being pressured anymore, um, 34.50, our year-end target, basically gets you to around 19.6 times which is perfectly reasonable. What about tech, big tech, and how much longer it can kind of drive the gains that we're seeing in the U.S.? It certainly has been quite a month for tech, hasn't it? <laughs> yes, it has. And I think for certain stocks uh, in, in the FANG group, it's been quite a decade in the, in the course of one year alone. <laughs> explain that. Yeah, well, no, I mean, like, is FANG really appropriate here? Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, and Google... Shouldn't it be like Microsoft, Oracle? Well, we can, you know, acronym Fanamag. them all day. FAMG and, you know, so on and okay, so forth. And, uh, but uh, uh, look, the, the long run drivers of growth in those names is absolutely intact, is likely to be intact 
even if the government uh, um, really gets uh, more intense coming into a, an election year in terms of, of regulatory scrutiny, data privacy issues, the long-term story is intact. That keeps us neutral um, in, in the medium term. However, what we would say is that if we're right in our view that you have a shift out of bonds and into stocks led by more public interest, the public will end up being a buyer of technology. The public is comfortable with technology, understands it, and is likely to be a buyer. Lisa's also comfortable with technology doubling down. I'm more valuation sensitive. Do I dip my toe in? I am. Yes, you are. <laughs> okay. In energy, um, you know, some of the sectors, maybe healthcare that have lagged and might suggest kind of we have a valuation call here. We do think it's valid to look at, at some of those laggards. Um, again, going back to this psychological turning point in confidence in bond yields, sort of triggering uh, you know, this, this potential move towards more value. And, and, and when you look at it, again, look, we're very sympathetic to the idea that over the long term, uh, the move towards ESG investing and move towards a, uh, um, you know, the, the green initiative is likely to continue to pressure energy share ownership. But again, over the last several years, nothing moves in a straight line. And we think it's basically time that people are going to look at an area where uh, it, you know, it, it, you're under 5% of the weight in the S&P 500. All right. What could go wrong that would make you inaccurate in your forecast that keeps you up at night? To us, the linchpin of, of the, you know, particularly late cycle is, is confidence. It was very important that not only consumer confidence, which is utmost, because I think we'd all acknowledge that the consumer has been the driving force of the last number of years. We do not expect that to change. But importantly, after a year and a half of sort of, you know, being in the trenches on the trade war, CEO confidence turned um, over this last quarter as well. To us, confidence needs to keep continuing to move forward. If there are geopolitical upsets, if there are domestic U.S. political upsets, and certainly the risk it does exist for the, for both of those. No. Um, that's you know, uh, you know, you look back at, at this time last year, and the government shut down at the same time yep. the Fed was hiking rates, at the same time the markets were cratering, and confidence took a hit. Yep. We you know we don't want to see that happen again. Neither do we. Julian Emanuel, BTIG, Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Thanks so much for joining us, coming here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Right now, Paul has gone to the corner and is practicing his lunges ahead <laughs> of going skiing because that is what he is interested in rather than talking about the repo market, which I've got to say <laughs> is really interesting to me and heading into year end. It was supposed to be potentially volatile, the, the sort of storm that few people were expecting. The storm turned out not to be at least, uh, there is a storm in the Midwest that's heading toward east, but it's not uh, in the repo market. Alex Harris has been covering this all year for us super well. She was talking about how there are potential nodes of contagion yesterday. Here she is. She comes into the office and she says, nothing's happening. Nah, we, you know, we kind of looked at each other and said, oh, things look relatively calm. You know, the rate's sort of normalized. It's 
bouncing around a little bit, but well within the target range that, you know, the Fed has laid out for short-term rates. So I think everyone's feeling like, okay, we're here. We can close the chapter on year end. Let's turn the calendar to 2020 and a whole new set of problems for the market. And mainly it's if you're the Federal Reserve, how do you extract yourself from the repo market? Because I I think at the end of the day, they don't want to have this big of a footprint. What would you say to somebody who looks at the fact that you saw the repo operation that the Fed has been doing undersubscribed on the final day of 2019, the fact that you're seeing nothing exciting going on in the repo market heading into year end, despite some of the gloom and doom warnings that we heard, isn't this a victory for the Fed? Can't the Fed go out and say, we have this? I think you do. But at the end of the day, one of the things that I know Jerome Powell had said back in his his post-FOMC press conference on December 11th was, you know, there should be volatility in the market. That's okay. Short-term rates should be volatile. They always have. And I think, you know, it's trying to balance for them, I think, you know, what level of volatility are they comfortable with? How much are they they comfortable with letting the Fed funds rate rise within their target range um, and not breaching it and causing some questions about their credibility? And so this is what I think 2020 is going to be about for them is, you know, finding, okay, well, what's the appropriate level of intervention in these markets from from letting them become unruly? And that also means taking a look, you know, at the regulatory picture and saying, how do we allow these markets to move more efficiently so we don't have to be in there all the time? And these are not questions that are going to be answered in the span of a couple of months. I mean, they've been talking about reserve levels and what the ideal target level reserve level is for like a year, and they still couldn't get anywhere before this all blew up. So there's a lot for them to discuss here. And yes, things have calmed down, but do you really, does the Fed really want to be pledging half a trillion dollars in overnight or in liquidity for the end of the year? Do they want that big of a footprint or or any sort of idea that this is what they could be providing? So Alex, how did we kind of get here? I want to get a sense of what's new about what we've been dealing with, with the Fed and the repo market since September. How's that different from what we've historically done? Um, Well, you know, it's not even that it's all that different. You know, what they call these overnight or term repo operations or or what the street calls system RPs, they've been they've done those before. They did those before the financial crisis. It was definitely um, it was the way in which they actively managed reserves and they actively managed the Fed funds rate. And then, you know, QE happened and, you know, there was this huge stockpile of reserves and they didn't feel like they needed to come in and manage the Fed funds rate because, you know, they had such excess reserves that it wasn't necessary. And so now what the issue is, is the Fed has to figure out, okay, what is our ideal level of reserves? And if we're under that, are we going to come in again and do these repo operations on a more regular basis to help manage, you know, the Fed funds rate and manage those reserves? And and that's what, you know, they say they don't want to, but, you know, I think what everyone's really unsure about and can't get a read on from the Fed is, okay, well, what's your ideal level of reserves? And, if, is, is it too low? Is it too high? I know the market thinks it's more like $1.7 trillion. You know, you've had people at the Fed, like New York Fed President John Williams, say, you know what, it's probably more like one three back to where we and were wh- in where, where are we now? We're about one five, Okay. And, it, and it's still, I think, some people feel like it's a little low because, again, you know, reserves are very fluid. I know the Fed only provides a weekly snapshot, but they, they move quite a bit. And, and, you know, they're devoted to things for regulatory purposes. So, you know... 
everyone's we got to figure out this year we got to figure out what this ideal level is and then the fed can go from there in terms of setting its policy and how it wants to proceed with the front end all right it is the final day uh, of trading for 2019 which means it's a perfect time to gaze at our navels and and talk (laughs) in big abstractions uh it's always a good time to do that but why don't we do that now anyway um could you give us a sense of what the big takeaway from 2019's repo disruptions uh, really is. I mean, what is sort of, when somebody thinks about this other than, oh my God, I need to go do my stretches. Um, you know, <laughs> what what should they think? You know, I think the, the takeaway is the central bank was woefully unprepared for this. I, I think they were completely caught off guard. I think there were warning signs as far back as April that there were issues and the market was starting to reflect it when month ends every month end started to look like a quarter end people are saying something's not right here something's broken and you know I it just took like a seemingly innocuous day of settlements in the treasury market to to really push us over the edge here that you know there was something broken a long time before we hit September and you know there were a few people keeping an eye on it and watching it and I think it just comes to show you that the Fed really took a hit here and you know people were really questioning their ability to see this and what they're actually you know reading and understanding and what the market's telling them what the streets telling them and dealers are telling them but I, I think they missed i mean they've recovered and again they've they've made sure that year end is gone smoothly but they they really missed here and and i think it was just a sign that they were really unprepared for what was to come and really underestimated what the what the big issues were here when do we expect to get some type of longer term i guess fix from the fed it's been a while <laughs> right are we i mean in order for them to kind of rehabilitate maybe their reputation in the marketplace do they need to come up with a longer term fix Oh, Paul, that's the million dollar question or trillion dollar question, really. I mean, that's what everyone wants to know is that they really don't have a long term plan in place. And that includes, you know, they need to figure out what their ideal level of reserves is. And then they need to figure out, okay, how are they going to extract themselves from the repo market? You know, what's their role in this going forward? Are they going to put a more permanent facility in place or are they just content doing these? Or do they feel like they have to do nothing because they're going to have be at this perfect level of reserves and we're going to be okay? So there, there's really a lot that they need to clear out regulatory as well, which you know, I was saying to someone, I'm like, what are the chances that we get anything from the Fed this year, you know, that could help make the plumbing run a little bit smoother? Because Jerome Powell at his press conference was saying, oh, well, we can implement things, but it's going to require, you know, sending out comment and like waiting for the comment period to close and getting that feedback and then, you know, sort of calibrating according to, to the comment. And, you know, that could take a year. Like, we could still be in this situation talking about regulatory issues a year from now. And I wouldn't be surprised. So there's just, there's a lot on their plate they need to work through. And, you know, minutes from the December meeting are out on Friday. And I don't even think that's going to give us much of a a sign of anything. I think they're just, they tend to be a little bit more methodical and a little slower to act on things. Also, it's the end of the year. And why (laughs) would they give us anything to talk about? Alex Harris. I mean, really, I I mean, this isn't hypothetical. I mean, honestly, they want to be boring. They will be boring. Alex Harris, who covers all things uh, rates and repos for us here at Bloomberg News. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.